Welcome to The Trip Lab, kitchen table conversations about integrative medicine and psychedelics. I'm your host and resident physician, Dr. Mariella Wood. In this episode, we are finally going to dive deeper into the heart of this podcast, psychedelic medicine. And specifically, we'll be chatting about magic mushrooms and LSD, or acid, today. So we're going to go over the history of how these compounds came to be, how they actually were used as medicine back in the 50s, why they were banned, and why they're now making a resurgence. We'll talk about the neuroscience of how they actually work and what the future of psychiatry, and actually life, is going to look like. So first, let's start with their history to give you a little bit of context. Magic mushrooms have been used for thousands of years for all sorts of purposes, mainly holistic healing and spiritual or religious reasons. One interesting theory, called the stoned ape theory, developed by Terence and Dennis McKenna, proposed that magic mushrooms were actually an essential piece for humans to evolve from apes many years ago. So how it works, and of course we'll dive into the neuroscience later, but briefly, magic mushrooms allow you to take in more sensory input, meaning you actually see more of what is actually there, and it causes you to make new neuronal connections. The stoned ape theory proposes that these processes, over time, allowed the ape brain to evolve and eventually become the more developed human brains that we have now. Of course, we can't ever prove this, but the theory is pretty interesting, and when we talk more about the neuroscience later in this episode, I think you might be on board. So, that being said, these psilocybin-containing mushrooms are not new by any means. LSD, or acid, was actually accidentally discovered in the 1940s when Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman was actually trying to develop a stimulant pharmaceutical to treat cardiac conditions. So when he was working in the lab, he accidentally absorbed a tiny amount onto his skin, and at that time noticed what he called an extremely stimulated imagination. So after that happened, and after he did animal studies and saw that the compound was safe, he actually tried a full dose himself, obviously leading him to fully trip, and he ended up biking home that day. And that day, April 19th, is actually known as Bicycle Day around the world. So even though acid is a synthetic molecule produced in the lab, it is actually derived from ergot, which is a fungus that grows on ancient grains like rye and barley. Interesting side note, these are the grains that in ancient times people used to ferment grapes to make wine. So, you see where this is going. When you had an ergot fungus on your barley, you would actually accidentally create a psychedelic wine. Imagine that today. I'd definitely order a case. Anyways, this psychedelic wine is actually thought to be connected to the Ulyssian Mysteries, which was a secret religion in ancient Greece. This was actually one of the first Western religions, even before Christianity, where people would visit the temple, drink a secret elixir that we are now finding out actually was that ergot psychedelic wine, and have a profound religious experience. The Ulyssian name actually stems from the Greek myth when Demeter, the goddess of earth and wine, went to Ulysses to get her daughter Persephone back from the underworld after she was actually abducted by Hades. In ancient Greece, many respected philosophers were a part of this ancient religion, including Marcus Aurelius and Cicero. But then, when Christianity came into power with the rise of the Roman Empire, 
Valentinian ordered the abolishment of anything and everything related to the Ulyssian mysteries, which is why we don't know a whole lot about them. But we are discovering more. And there's actually a fascinating book that I highly recommend, uh, published just recently, actually, in 2020, that goes into detail about these mysteries and what has been found out. And actually talks about how basically all of the greatest minds in the ancient world that are responsible for our modern civilization, including math and science and agriculture, were actually avid drug users. Um, but this book, it's fascinating. It's called The Immortality Key by Brian Mercurescu. Don't know if I'm saying his name right, but I'll link the book in the show notes if you guys want to check it out. Anyways, back to Albert Hoffman and his excellent chemistry. So after he discovered LSD, he then went on to isolate psilocybin from magic mushrooms. And during those years, both of these drugs, along with a few others, were used by psychiatrists and psychotherapists to treat anxiety, depression, and addiction. They also experimented with treating schizophrenia too, but we'll get more into that later. Then, in the 60s, as we all know, these drugs started to be used recreationally, and they were heavily associated with the anti-war counterculture movements, which, as we also know, did not fit the government's political agenda at that time. So, when someone is pushing a different political side than you, what do you do? Do you listen and have an open conversation? Nope. You ban them. You cancel them. You create division similar to what we do today. <laughs> but ultimately, you scare people to pull them to your side, which is exactly what happened in the 60s and 70s. The government funded smear campaigns, funding illegitimate research that claimed that acid caused chromosomal damage, caused cancer, mutations, caused people to develop psychosis and go crazy. And did their data actually show this? No. And many, many studies since then have proven that those fake studies had false data. But the media is a beast, as we all know. And once something is out there, that reputation is forever. Then in the 70s, Richard Nixon declared the war on drugs and psychedelics were officially made a Schedule One drug, which means no medical benefit and high potential for abuse. That is the definition of a Schedule One drug which we will find out in this episode that psychedelics are quite the opposite on both accounts. There is an innumerable amount of medical benefit, and they actually have the least potential for abuse out of pretty much any compound that we have today. We could do a whole episode on this and how that came to be, MKUltra, and so much more, but let's just jump back to the studies today and what's happening now. So we get to the 90s, and these compounds are finally able to be studied again. And that is when the psychedelic renaissance began that we are in now. Jump forward to today, and particularly in the last few years, the research has boomed, and studies are being published every month on these compounds and their therapeutic potentials. That's what this episode is about. Let's jump in. Psilocybin is the active ingredient in over 200 species of mushrooms. This is what we call shrooms or magic mushrooms. And LSD, which stands for lysergic acid diethylamide, known as acid for short. Both of these molecules are almost identical in their chemical structure, which is why we'll be talking about them together today. They are considered classic psychedelics, along with DMT, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, 
and mescaline, which is the active ingredient in the peyote and San Pedro cactus. These four molecules are all deemed classic psychedelics because they act on the serotonin 2A receptor. But before we dive into the neuroscience, what can they treat? It turns out a whole lot. There are promising studies to treat depression, anxiety, and addiction. When I say addiction, that means to tobacco, cigarettes, alcohol, opioids, which is heroin or any other opioids. There's also studies looking on how we can use these molecules to improve quality of life and to boost creativity too. So not just to treat psychiatric disorders. But how do these molecules treat all of these different disorders? And that is what we are going to dive into right now. I do want to start with safety, because unfortunately, those smear campaigns that I talked about from the 70s really gave acid an unfortunate bad reputation. And that's why today, when I bring up psychedelics in any kind of clinical or medical context, people immediately dismiss them without actually knowing what they can do and how safe they are. So let me give you some safety information. Psychedelic mushrooms and acid do not alter your physical body. They only work in the mind. That means you technically cannot overdose on them like you can opioids or cocaine. They don't cause heart arrhythmias, and they don't cause you to stop breathing like other drugs do. Next, they have no physical dependence. You cannot get physically addicted to them like you can opioids. They also cause the least psychological dependence. And in fact, people actually report not wanting to do another psychedelic experience shortly after experiencing one. Quick side note on physical and psychological dependence in general, it's actually the legal drugs that have the highest abuse potential. I'm talking alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, and opioids that doctors regularly prescribe, shortly followed, of course, by cocaine and meth, which are obvious ones. Psychedelics, on the other hand, cause virtually no addiction. Okay, so what about toxicity? Also, they are completely non-toxic. They do not cause cancer, they do not cause mutations, they don't cause liver or kidney damage, and they do not cause psychosis or schizophrenia either. One study actually showed that you would have to eat three times your body weight in mushrooms before they would even start to have an effect on your liver. So, these molecules are very, very safe. They just work in the mind. So, with that being said, what do they actually do in your mind? As I stated earlier, these molecules attach to the serotonin 2A receptor, but they don't cause a release of serotonin, like, for example, MDMA, which is known as molly or ecstasy. The psychedelic compounds, and I mean the classic psychedelics, like mushrooms and acid that we're talking about today, act on the serotonin receptor, but they do their own thing. And because they do their own thing and don't cause the release of serotonin, you don't get the same come down or hangover like you would with molly or other drugs. So these molecules bind to the serotonin receptor. And when that happens, a bunch of magical things happen. So let's break down each of them. First, your thalamus activity gets put on hold. So your thalamus is the part of your brain that regulates consciousness. And it does this by essentially picking and choosing what you actually see in the world. So that means there's actually a ton of stuff happening in the world that we don't actually see because our brain determined that it's not important in order to operate in the world and be a normal human, to interact with other humans. 
So your thalamus is the gatekeeper, and it determines what is important and what is not. When you take a psychedelic, the thalamus actually gets put on hold, or at the very least, its activity decreases quite a bit. So this means that you can see and take in more of what is actually there. So when all this sensory input comes into your mind, you can actually process it and it can be at the forefront of your consciousness rather than it just getting tucked away and the thalamus not allowing you to see it consciously. Once the thalamus does this, then the rest of the magic happens, which we will continue to talk about. So next, let's talk about the default mode network. Our brain has a lot of networks, so there are individual parts of the brain, but then there's also networks where a bunch of neurons interact with each other all throughout your brain. The default mode network is one, for short, the DMN, and it is actually thought to be the physical location, or in this case network, of the Freudian ego. So this network, or what Freud called the ego, allows us to integrate what we see into something that is meaningful to us personally. So this part of your brain is essential to make you a human and operate in the world as we normally do. For example, this is what allows us to choose a favorite color or pick a career or remember some memories more vividly than others because we associate things as personal to us as an individual. And again, it's what Freud described as the ego. An ego has a different term in real life, but it's very intertwined into what Freud described as the ego. It means that we determine what's personal to us and puts the focus on me or I. This default mode network also allows us to determine if we should be focused on work versus daydreaming versus doing anything else, and it allows us to pick and choose what network our brain is operating in. When you take a psychedelic, the default mode network decouples from the rest of your brain. This means it stops interacting with all of the other networks. When this happens, this is why some people experience what they call as an ego death. So instead of being able to integrate things as personally important to you, you feel at one with the universe and those around you. We'll get back to why this is important to treat psychiatric disorders in a minute, but let's continue with the other magical things that happen when you take a psychedelic. Next, you literally create new neuronal connections. And I'm not just talking one or two new neurons that connect together, but thousands of new connections. And these are connections between neurons that wouldn't normally connect together. There's a super interesting graphical representation of that that actually represents the exact amount of new neuronal connections that are made, and I'll link to that in the show notes. So these connections are made when you have a psychedelic experience, and they actually stay after the psychedelic trip has ended. They're not all firing at once like they do when you're tripping, but the connections stay and they'll help you out a little bit later, which we'll get to. Next, when you're on psychedelics, your brain emits brain waves that are a different wavelength than those that we admit during normal waking consciousness. So we've done functional MRI studies to determine this, and we've seen that there's actually different frequencies of brain wavelengths that are emitted during a psychedelic experience. Interestingly, these brain waves are the same frequency of brain waves that are admitted during a dream state 
or for those that can actually put themselves into a deep meditative state, it's the same as a deep meditative state. That's why a lot of people call psychedelics a crash course in meditation, because it allows your brain to actually get into that state that you can get to when you deeply meditate without the help of a drug. So, all in all, putting all of those things together that I just described, all of those magical things that happen to your brain end up resetting the brain of its negative cognitive patterns. This is why it works for both depression and anxiety, or why it works for addiction. So let me break that down. Everything you experience is technically all in your head, so to speak. The cravings that you get from nicotine or heroin, you might physically feel them in your body, but the interpretation is happening in your mind. For depression and anxiety, you're either integrating too much or too little, to put simply. So when all of these things happen during a psychedelic trip, your brain resets in a sense. So you make new connections, and this allows your brain to use those new connections to operate in life, rather than those connections that were made day after day, experiencing depression, anxiety, and addiction, and building yourself to get stuck into those negative cognitive patterns. So this is why one single psychedelic trip can be a treatment for you. Rather than prescribing a drug that people have to take every day for years in order to cure, not really cure, their depression. Speaking of those other drugs, let's look into them for a minute and we can compare them to how psychedelics work. The gold standard drugs to treat depression and anxiety are the class of drugs known as the SSRIs, which stand for the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. Some examples of these drugs are Prozac, which is fluoxetine, Lexapro, which is escitalopram, or Zoloft, which is sertraline. These drugs pretty much do exactly what their class name implies, so they are called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which means they prevent serotonin from being reabsorbed, meaning that the serotonin stays on the nerve receptors for a longer period of time. Let's chat about that for a second because I do have very strong opinions about it. People wrongly just call serotonin the happy molecule, but it is so much more than that. The neuroscience is probably a little bit out of the scope of this podcast, but maybe not. Let me know if any of you would be interested in diving deeper into the science, and I can definitely do that for sure. I love it. But anyways, serotonin is not just a molecule that makes you happy. In general, we do know that generally more serotonin generally means more happiness. I know I've said generally a bunch of times, but it's because it's not always the case. And then people equate, in general, more happiness is generally less depression. And that's kind of how the SSRIs work. It's nothing drastic. They usually only work in conjunction with therapy. And honestly, they're not that great. They don't really work in a lot of people, and they cause a lot of negative side effects like sexual dysfunction and other things like that. So they do cause more serotonin. And what actually happens after a long period of time is that that increased serotonin blunts your response to depressive stimuli over time. So that's how Prozac works. Like I said earlier, psychedelics also work on the serotonin receptor but instead of decreasing your response to depressive thoughts like the SSRIs do, psychedelics reduce rigid thinking. 
So ultimately, psychedelics increase well-being rather than decreasing depression. This is in addition to the reset model that we talked about earlier. So because psychedelics can do this, people are looking into microdosing psychedelics a few times a week rather than doing a full big psychedelic trip to mimic taking a drug every day like the SSRIs. The data is not as significant for this method at this time, but it is a very interesting concept and there's a lot more research being done. So what is it? When you microdose a psychedelic, you take a very small amount, small enough that you don't actually trip, but instead you notice very subtle changes throughout the day. Stuff like maybe noticing that colors are a little bit more vivid, or maybe you have a deeper appreciation for your day-to-day life. We'll definitely do a whole episode on microdosing because it really is pretty interesting and there's a lot that goes into it. But at the current moment, to treat all the psychiatric disorders that I mentioned, people are going in to do a controlled trip with a psychotherapist to guide them through the trip. They then continue to visit that psychotherapist for weeks after the experience has ended in order to integrate what they learned into their lives. The last thing that I wanted to touch on in this episode is the future research of LSD and psilocybin to actually treat neurodegenerative disorders as well. So this means dementia, Alzheimer's, and just the general cognitive decline that comes with age. Recent studies have shown that acid actually upregulates gene expression for specific genes that are involved with the development and plasticity of neurons. So what does that mean in layman terms? Very scientific. What it means is that acid stimulates your cells to grow new neurons. One recent study out of Yale saw a five-fold increase in the expression of a protein called ARC, which increases brain plasticity, which means the ability to regenerate. Why this is so fascinating is that neurons are one of the only types of cells in your body that don't actually actively and regularly regenerate. So for example, when you get a cut, your skin heals. It regenerates. Your blood vessels regenerate. The lining of your colon will repair itself. But when a neuron is damaged, it is pretty much permanent. In some rare occasions, neurons can regenerate, but it is slow and very rare. Acid might actually induce the regeneration of neurons. So in the future, we might be able to treat Alzheimer's with acid or just in general use it to prevent the cognitive decline that comes with age. So that was a little overview on the therapeutic potential of magic mushrooms and acid. There definitely is a lot more to talk about, like should these molecules be used only in a controlled setting with a doctor present? Or should they be completely legal, like alcohol is, and like cannabis is in some states? And of course, we can definitely dive deeper into the history and the science. So let me know what you guys are most interested in, and I'll put together an episode on that. I also am putting together a list of guests that I want to have on. And these guests range from people that are doing research on these compounds, people who have had profound experiences people from indigenous cultures and how that is completely different from what we're doing and so much more. So let me know who you want to hear from, what you want to hear about, and we will definitely dive into it. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and share so we can get the conversation started about psychedelic medicine. 
Let's destigmatize it and get people involved. 